the first person is, oh my God, I spilled something. Oh, it's a disaster. Go to the broom closet, down the hall, take a breath, into the closet. There's a broom there. I need that specific room to, to clean this up. Go, go, go. One person goes in there. They open the door. Broom's not there. They come back. Broom wasn't there. What do I do? Okay, that's one person. The other person goes, broom's not there. They jump outside. They cut down a tree branch. They whittle the branch into a broom. They grab leaves. They wrap it up with their shoelace. They make a broom and they come back in. They're like, hey, here's the broom. I didn't find it in the closet, but we made this. This should work, right? Those are two different types of people. And I can tell that person apart like this. And those people move up every ladder, socially, economically, career-wise. That is more important than what you decide to get into. If you be that person, you cannot get out of the way of success. It will smack you in the face everywhere you go. Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Aaron Griffin. Let's get after it. I am stoked to have Brant Pinvidic with us in our young professional, our group of young professionals uh, in our mentor network jam. He joined us for a live discussion call, and this is the second live discussion call we've posted on the podcasting project here. Um, the first one, I want to thank all of you. It was our highest downloaded podcast of the month. Uh, if you missed that one, it's with Kate McKay. You've got to check it out. I got so much feedback on it. Um, it, it, it really was phenomenal. And as we explore, as really I explore this podcast and where I want it to go, I want you guys to know I am not going anywhere away from the three to seven minute episodes, which is really my bread and butter of bringing energy and optimism to your day. I am going to expand, however, the podcast to really fit the audience. I think most of our audience are young professionals. They're people who are in school. They're people just out of school. They're building their careers. And I can't think of a better way to deliver information than bringing on some phenomenal guests. So not only will you see podcasts in the future like these live discussion calls, but you're also going to see one-on-one interviews by myself as well uh, with people who I find curiously interesting, exploring different traits and skills and careers that could really impact you in a positive way. And that's our goal with these podcasts. So I really appreciate you guys coming in and listening to this podcast. Do me a favor. I never, ever, ever do this. I haven't done this on pretty much any of my podcasts. It helps us out a ton if you leave a review. I've never asked for this. We only have a few reviews and I'm kind of kicking myself for it. If you think that there's anything of value in here, please leave us a review. A five-star rating helps us a ton in finding new people uh, on the App Store or, uh, excuse me, on the Apple uh, podcasting app or wherever you get your podcast. It helps us a ton. If you could leave us a review, that'd be great. All right. Without further ado, I'm done with that. Brant Pinvidic is the author of The Three-Minute Rule. Uh, he's award, an award-winning producer and director. He's behind shows like Bar Rescue and Extreme Makeover. Uh, weight loss edition. He's a podcaster, a Forbes contributor, animal rescuer, and a self-proclaimed rejecter of average. Here's Brant Pinovitic in our live discussion. Brant, if you don't mind, it'll help all of us as young professionals. I would love to hear just a little bit of your backstory. How did you end up going from some guy in Canada to being this Hollywood rock star producer who ends up pitching Bar Rescue with John Taffer and some of these other titles that are <laughs> awesome? Um, you know, listen, here's the thing. I was a serial failed entrepreneur in Canada, partly because I just had the wrong attitude about the way things got done. I wanted to get to the end zone the fastest way. I always look for a shortcut and the shortcuts always a longer way around. So I was always trying new businesses. I was great at setting things up, but really bad at operating. I had an idea for a TV show because I used to do, I used to own a bar and I'd have all these fun games. I thought this would make a great TV show. Went and spent my own money, which you should never do. 
filming this TV show. I couldn't sell it in Canada. Uh, Canadian television doesn't work the way you think it does when you live in Canada. It's not till you spend your own money and you're running around trying to sell a TV show that it doesn't work. So I got really lucky where, you know, somebody I knew knew somebody they knew who knew somebody they knew who knew like a PA on some TV show down in LA. And somehow I got a meeting with some D-level producer and I flew down to Los Angeles and that D-level producer introduced me to a C-level producer to a B-level producer. And then it was Jerry Bruckheimer and Dick Clark and all of these people vying for this TV idea, basically, because that's the world we were in at the time. And there was a big fever for it. It was, it was a crazy sort of bidding war for the idea. And, and NBC wanted to option the show and maybe make it. And so when the agent was saying, you know, he's, we got to figure out what to do. And they're like, we'd like to hire him to come and work on our shows to make the presentations the way he made his show. Because at the time I had filmed the show already. Like nobody had, nobody did that ever. You wouldn't no no moron would ever go film a TV show without knowing where he's going to sell it. Right. I did that. And so I had then edited it together to show networks how it worked. And I had all this documentation. And so what it looked like was some guy who put some unbelievable amount of work to pitch an idea basically. And so the head of NBC, Jeff Gaspin was like, Hey, can you make that level of detail and, and thought process on some of these other shows that we bought that were on a napkin basically. And so my agent said one phrase and he said, no, I, you know, he's going to, he's going to go with the show. And they're like, yeah, we'll buy the show. We want to hire him. And my agents called every single person I had met from between that entire time and was basically like, Hey, NBC's taking him off the table. You're going to hire him. And you know, you had people going like, who was, who was that? We met him. NBC wants him. Well, we'll we want him too. Right. So I got this job as the development head at this company. And at the time in Canada, I was making my wife, I had no job. <laughs> my wife was making $41,000 as a manager at IBM. And that's where we were living. And my first contract in the United States was $115,000. So it, US dollars. So we were like, and I thought without question, I'd be there for one year at a one year deal. And I thought the second they figure out that I don't know anything about TV at all. And I shouldn't be here. We'll be back. But you know what? Like we're going to live cheap. We're going to save some money. This is great. And I, and my agent said to me right at the very beginning, he's like, Hey, listen, you now have a reputation. Like you have to make every pitch you go out with look like the one that we sold. Like it's gotta be detailed and you gotta have it all ironed out. So I, I did that, which helped. And it was funny when, about five, six months later, and I had sold a pilot to CMT and it was called Muscle Car Makeover. And this country group, uh, Montgomery Gentry was helping you make over your muscle car. And we had a pilot and we went to Las Vegas to, to do a, like a focus group for the pilot. Focus group is one of those rooms without the, with the two-way glass where they hire regular people, they give them $25 and a sandwich to tell you terrible things about your idea or product. And so we get in there and the head of the research group comes out and I'm sitting there with the president of the network. And he goes, do you guys want to do the slide or the dial test for interactions? And the president of the network looks at me and goes, I don't know, Brent, you've done this more than I have. What do you want to do? I like the slide. So, you know, and that was my career for the first four or five years was trying to pick up information, pretending like I knew everything fitting in because I just didn't come from that background. And but the background I did come from was, is I knew how to pitch ideas and I knew how to make people understand what I was pitching without making them feel desperate. Cause I had been in people's living rooms, raising money 
where if I didn't get $5,000 from you, I wouldn't be able to eat. And when you're in that mode, it doesn't make you a better salesman. You don't, it makes you focus on the idea that if somebody finds out that I'm desperate, they will run away. And so you develop a way of doing a presentation or a pitch that basically just sticks to the information. And that was really kind of my core um, when I got into Hollywood. And so being able to sell and create TV shows makes you very popular, makes you well-renowned, like all those things. It wasn't any business skills or anything like that. It was the fact that I, I just got in a good time and I created a whole pile of shows that sold, which was really good. And then I just developed the reputation for having some of the best pitches in, in the Hollywood system. And mostly it was because I didn't waste people's time. I spoke clearly. I know how to make people understand ideas. And so it just kind of took off from there. So just a, as, a, as a question to make you think, or maybe we'll see where, see where you get from this. So everyone in here ages, all in their 20s or late teens, what would you do if you were starting off again today? I have a feeling you're going to say not television, but maybe television. If you had all the skills <laughs> you had today, what would, what would you be jumping into if you were going in? It's 2020 coronavirus, everything that's going on. Yeah. What would you do to start making a name for yourself and start learning new skills? What would you do? I mean, the first thing I would, I would do is I would get it and clear my brain that there are no, sh no shortcuts, right? Like you can't look at someone else's roadmap, see their end place and be like, I'm going from here to there, right? My story of how I come here today is a cautionary tale and it's an inspirational journey, right? It's a mix of the two things. And you're looking at my highlight reel when you look at my career. You're not looking at the ups and downs. So if I was talking to my 20-year-old self, I would say it takes time. It takes, and it takes a little bit of commitment, but it doesn't take as much skill and smarts as you'd think. It's more important to be consistent and be good and do a little bit more than expected. I have hired 10,000 people in my career in the last 20 years. And I can, I can tell you within 15 minutes, I can tell you in an interview, right? Every, every time when I'm in an interview, I know which one of these two peoples are, right? So there's two types of people. The first person is, oh my God, I spilled something. Oh, it's a disaster. Go to the broom closet, down the hall, take a ref into the closet. There's a broom there. I need that specific room to clean this up. Go, go, go. One person goes in there. They open the door. Broom's not there. They come back. Broom wasn't there. What do I do? Okay. That's one person. The other person goes, broom's not there. They jump outside. They cut down a tree branch. They whittle the branch into a broom. They grab leaves. They wrap it up with their shoelace. They make a broom and they come back in. They're like, hey, here's the broom. I didn't find it in the closet, but we made this. This should work, right? Those are two different types of people. And I can tell that person apart like this. And those people move up every ladder, socially, economically, career-wise. That is more important than what you decide to get into. If you be that person, you cannot get out of the way of success. It will smack you in the face everywhere you go. I had, a, I had, a, I've had two assistants that were like that. And one of them started out as my assistant making $46,000 a year. And five years later, he's the senior vice president of a production company making $280,000 a year. And he's, God bless him. He's one of the greatest people I know, but he is not that creative. So it, it's not like, oh my God, he's created all these shows. He's just the guy who does more than expected. Do more than expected, even if you think nobody's watching, because it will train you to do that when someone is watching. And we are watching more than you think. I see that stuff from a mile away. I love that. What, what, what's the, what was the first time you had to fire somebody? What was that like? 
Uh, well, it's not good. I'm, and I'm not good like that. Like there's things I do really well. And then there's things that I don't do well. And it's called the Peter principle, which is you're going to be promoted to the highest level of your incompetence. And so what happened was, is, you know, I had sold tens of millions of dollars in TV shows. So I keep getting promoted to fancier jobs and bigger responsibility to the point where I'm the president and CEO of a, of a huge, one of the largest production companies in the world, which is great. Cause I can make millions of dollars, but you don't want me in charge of your divisions. You don't want me leading a team in that sense. Cause I'm scared of conflict and everybody has to like me and everything is kind of about me. So I'm like super narcissistic and super insecure. So like that combination is really fun at a party and cool to be friends with, not so good to work for. So every time I fire somebody, it's a disaster. And uh, I don't do it well. And it's, it doesn't go as bad as I always picture it. So that's why like in my new incarnation now, like I don't really have employees, I have a few employees, but I don't really do that anymore. I'm just doing my own thing. So yeah, I'm bad at that. So you got, so you got away from something you didn't want to do. <laughs> you got oh yeah, like awesome. yeah, I'm out. I'm out of all the all the crap I don't want to do. I don't do any of it anymore. I love it. I I have a couple questions about your book, which I loved, and I I, I will. I have to say, Brant, with us, we're all relying on Amazon. Amazon Prime has been low, so I don't know if anybody really got a chance to check out your book. But I know a lot of these guys have some questions. So guys, throw it in the chat. Let's get some questions going here. But I do have okay, one question. Go. I do want to hit you with Brant. Um, and I'll just, I'll just call on these guys to ask their own questions too, as they throw it in the chat. But you, one of the things I love from New York was you mentioned you, what you do with your adventure club and you bought the domain rejectaverage.com. And yep. do you want to tell that story a little bit? Cause we have, I, I've worked with some, uh, one of the biz models we had at our, at the old team I was with was like, we, you know, it's like, don't be average. Like it's just absolutely right. don't be average. And do you want to talk about kind of where your mindset of that? Cause I, I, I love that story. I think these guys would love it too, as to how you got to the, the how you got to that point and now what you do. Cause it's like the coolest stuff in the world that you do on social media. Yeah. It's a, it is a crazy thing. Let me see if I can, I don't remember how to do any of this stuff though. It's so weird being in this studio without anybody working on it. Like it's like, I'm, I'm by myself here. It's <laughs> like, Oh, turn on the lights. Oh, turn on this. Like it is so crazy. Hang on a second. Uh, that's not the right thing. How does this work? That, how do I get over here? Press escape. I wanna, I wanna do this, but I don't know how to get the, the stupid screen behind me off. Take over here. Oh, there it is. One moment, please. Look at that. Oh, that's, okay, so that's how I do it. I'm learning lots of cool stuff here. I had these, my team, look at that. There it is. So yeah. Ta-da. It's my reject average. That's so cool. Anyways. Yeah. So what happened was, is I used, well, my kids grew up like my kids are teenagers now. So, um, and I was a crazy adventure dad and they got to the point where they didn't want to go do fun stuff anymore. And so I realized as I got to my midlife crisis and I make the joke, like, I got a red sports car and my wife still built like an 18 year old. So I don't, didn't have anywhere to put my sort of middle age crisis. And so I realized that I didn't have any friends that wanted to do fun stuff. I had lots of, you know, like Hollywood rich assholes that basically go to the montage on the weekends or I don't know what they do, but I have a pickup truck. So I didn't have any friends at a pickup truck. So the only way I could get people to do stuff is if I, if I invited them to do that. I wanted to go jet skiing. I'd never go jet ski because none of my friends have jet skis. 
Nobody even thinks about it. So I rented five jet skis. I sent an email out and I was like, hey, anybody want to go jet skiing? And sure enough, they do want to go jet skiing if somebody else plans it. So that's how it started. It was basically just this sort of travel adventure stuff that I would do on the weekends with my executive friends. And that built into where it is now, which is, you know, we did 32 adventures last year. I would have done 37 this year. And I take high level executives in various industries and we go out and do crazy, cool, fun, weird stuff. And it's just basically a chance to get out of their comfort zone, build bonds with like-minded people and just do fun stuff. You know, I have a lot of friends who make a lot of money and they don't know, they don't do anything with it. And I got into that mode myself a little bit where it's like, I stopped spending the money that I was making. And it was like, what am I doing this for? Like, this is crazy. And so reject average just became this like, Hey, if there was a prize for, you know, winning the weekend, what would I have to do to try to win it? And so I go out on these crazy adventures and bring all stuff. So that's been a really fun thing that I've got a chance to do. Ta-da. Yeah. I don't need anybody here anymore. You're all gone. You're all fired. I've got, uh, I've got uh, Kevin from the Hyperconscious Podcast is coming on in a couple of weeks to join us and talk about podcasting and everything that he does. And I got a chance to listen to yeah. his episode with you. Well, you guys have a couple, but I listened to your the second one where you had oh, him at your good house. One. You guys, one of the yeah, it's earlier in the episode, and you guys, you talked about this moment. You go to this uh, high-level executive's house, and he's got this crazy house in Los Angeles, and you kind of made like this realization of of like kind of the way he he acted with the house. Do you mind sharing that with these guys? Because I I absolutely love that part. If you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. So. It comes from a Forbes article that I wrote a little while ago. It was a little bit of a step, and it was basically we, we plan for success, but we don't prepare for success. And the idea is that as we you know, plan and think about what it's like to be successful, if you're in your 20s, you're thinking about the life you want to live, the life you want to build, where you want to get to, what would make you happy. And I guarantee that what you think would make you happy and what would be enough and what would be success to you right now by the time you get to 40 years old, you will have moved those goalposts. And what you want to be successful and what you want to feel successful will have moved to something else. And you'll be no closer to success today as you will be that day. And that's where I was. And, and most of the people I know are like that. And it's crazy because I blew past my gauges of success many times over, never felt like it at all, right? Success that's not categorized and celebrated is almost impossible to achieve. So I happened to be uh, in a business relationship with a guy, a client, and he rents a, this ridiculous, I can't even guess, maybe it's $40 million house. It's one of the most spectacular places I've ever seen. Top of Sunset Plaza. First time we meet, you know, it's all business. So I'm just sort of looking around like with my eyes, like what the hell is this house? But eventually we become a little bit closer. So I finally say to him, hey, Greg, you gotta show me this house. It's ridiculous. He's like, oh yeah, it's pretty cool. So he starts showing me and you're like, it's one of those things where all of the doors open up and you're looking into Jennifer Aniston's pool and it's the most ridiculous thing. And every room we go in, is like, oh my God, that cowboy is so amazing. Oh shit, look at this. You know, like the theater. Oh! And we go into the bedroom, the master bedroom, which is 2000 square feet and huge fireplace and a giant bed. And it looks out over Los Angeles. You could see the Hollywood sign. You could see the water. It's, it's outrageous. And I swear to God, I could feel 
what my life would be like if I owned this house, right? I could feel how I would be in the kitchen. And when I was in that bedroom, I could picture myself ah, waking up in the morning from a better sleep, feeling better. And like, just that's where life would be the best if you could live in that place and wake up like that, right? And as I'm sort of visualizing this, I look over, I'm like, this is amazing. And he gives me this kind of brush off look, which was kind of like, eh, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I liked it, right? And it kind of stabbed me in the chest because literally the day before, Kevin and Alan had been at the house. And when they came to the house, because I was like, oh man, I'm not coming into town to meet you guys. No offense to them, but it's like, I'm not getting my car and driving into LA. There's no way. And I was like, oh, you guys can come out to the studio, I guess. So they come out to the house. I never met them before. Like, you know, we talked, whatever. So they come out to the house and they're doing the same thing. It's like, oh my God, there's a gate and the thing. It's, oh my God. You know, and they're doing the same thing. And I take them outside to show them this is a big property. I have horses on the property. And, oh, and I had done the exact same thing. When I was explaining it to them, I was just like, yeah, it's pretty cool. And I realized that what Greg was doing in his $40 million house is I was doing in my house. And if, if I got to be in the $40 million house, I would not be the guy I am now excited about it. I'd be him. Just like I'm the guy who's not excited about this house. Just like I used to be the guy who thought if I could make $2,000 a month, I'd have points where I thought I had been successful. I just blew past them and never thought about it. It's because I never took one second of my life to train myself to actually feel what success is. I don't, I never knew that. So it's not like I could just turn it on and be like, oh, time to feel successful. I spent years of my life training how to be successful at a job, but not successful in life. And so now I actually train CEOs on this process, this high intensity living, which is effectively training yourself so that when you finally reach the success that you want, you can celebrate it, feel it, experience it so that when you get more, you experience more. And so at, in your twenties, that's really important is to pick milestones, find elements that you can be successful at and actually practice feeling success and achievement from them. Even if it's not big, it doesn't matter because if you don't do it now, you will not do it later. That is a total myth. If the car you've always wanted, you see it every day, when you can afford that car, when you drive that car, you will feel about it the same way you do about the car you have now. Guaranteed, I have been there. Uh, and everybody's there. So you gotta train yourself to be like, holy shit, I have a car, this is fantastic. And then when you get to that, like there's a process there, so there's a. I love it, Brent. Brent, I want to turn it over to some of these other guys. They got, they all got their popping questions in the chat. Brandon, you actually had a great one. That's, I mean, he's talking about his story. So, Mr. Brandon McGregor, you want to ask Brent your question? Yeah, sure. Hi, Brent. Great story. Thank you so much for your time. Rock on. Um, so yeah, you said you you blew past uh, every goal you had for your success. I'm curious as to right now in your life. What do you, what are your current uh, goals for your future success? Or is it like you don't even really set goals for success anymore? Well, it's, it's a little more on the personal side for me because I'm sort of training. I, I am in the mode now to say, if it never gets better than this, I can be happy for the rest of my life. Because if I can't say that right now, then I am so screwed because look, I don't have a jet. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, like I wouldn't even, 
So it's like, I'm nowhere near financially in a place where you can be like, hey, I got to F you money. It's not that at all. But if I can't look at the situation I'm in now and all of the things I have in life and the abilities and blah, blah, blah. If I can't, if I can't live perfectly happy and content with what I have now, there's no point in moving to another level. So right now I'm trying to refocus in that mode of like, I want to be a professional at being successful, not be a professional at trying to achieve success. So when I get to be at the highest level there, other things will open up from that. Um, I have little ones, like I, I have a foundation that I run and I'm trying to do a lot more with high school and training and entrepreneurial skills. I like to do that kind of stuff. So there's more of that I would do, but from a core of what we in society consider successful, uh, relationships, status, money, you know, career, those kind of things, I have, I have no aspirations to move past where I'm at now. I know there's paths to do that. I know I have opportunities to do that. I just have no aspiration to do that. And I, I'm going to spend a little more time working on if that's really the way it ends for me in that space, could I be okay with it right now? Because I just don't want to be the guy who has to get something else to feel like he's finally making it. Because I know that doesn't exist. Right. Yeah, so basically if you do that in which you're, you're completely happy with where you're at right now, then when you do eventually get an idea or something that you do want to achieve, like you get passionate about and go out and do it, it's yeah. more fulfilling to you. That's right. I'll know how to, I'll know how to use that success. And listen, it's a balance. You're 20 something years old. You can't make the same decisions I do. It's like, if you do that, you're going to be a whitewater rafting guide or a ski bum. Like if you want to trade lifestyle and being happy in your situation at 20 years old, no problem. You'll just never have any money. And so it's like, if that's, if you want to make that trade early, okay, I get it. And I, I know those people, they, uh, they whitewater raft guide in the summer and then they go and ski snowboard guide in the winter. I get it. Or if you want to be the guy who's 65 years old and can't leave his job and has millions of dollars in his bank, like those are the two things. The idea is when, could, when do you get off the hamster wheel? Like when have you traded enough of your invested time and energy and, and grinding it for a reward? And so I was always looking at a longer tail, trying to make more money. I had a bigger number in mind of retirement kind of thing. But as I kept grinding that wheel over and over again, I was kind of like, I don't want to do that anymore. So you, you need to have balance, right? I, don't, I wouldn't advise kids in high school or young professionals to be like, uh, work-life balance. Like, that's just ridiculous. You could have work-life balance. You'll just always be working forever. And if, once, you start to, if, once you start to work on that, that's the level you're going to be at. So if you have enough money now to live this lifestyle that you like and you can be happy with that for the rest of your life, off you go. But, you know, I got to the point where it's like, yeah, like I could get another house, but it's like, there's only so many rooms you use. And like, I could get another car. I have a couple of cars. So it's like, there's not a giant leap. So it was ridiculous that I spent so many years chasing more money when I wasn't going to spend it anyway. We got, a, we, got a, we got a couple interesting questions on sales. Tyler, do you want to lead this off with, the, with, with your sales question? And I'm going to go to Hamza after this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wicked appreciate you being on here, Brent. It's been awesome so far. So I'm excited for this. But uh, yeah, my question was basically, uh, I'm a really good presenter, but I definitely ramble and I can get off track on tangents um, and all things that I'm passionate about. But 
you talked about how you, you're incredible at really getting your point across in an effective and an efficient way. And I want to know if you, one, started out not being as efficient and effective as that, and if there was a turning point and kind of how you got to your skill set now of being so good at just basically transplanting an idea from your head into somebody else's in a quick way. Uh, well, listen, first and foremost, the book is that exactly. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Even if you got through the intro, you'd know right away. You'd be like, oh, crap. Now I get it. Um, it's just the core of storytelling. And what you're, you, you, know, you probably have the same core issue that 99% of my clients have, which is you know your product or business or service inside and out intimately, amazingly. And you just want your audience to feel it the same way you do. And so you have placed value on all of the little bits of information and every single element of it at the same level because you've had time to ruminate with it and understand it and build the puzzle. And what you're not doing is you're not allowing your audience to build with it. They have no foundation of understanding. You have to start with a foundation of understanding. The basic elements build on each other so that you can get them understand it. In Hollywood, the difference between a great script and a bad script is nothing to the writers. The guy who writes a bad script absolutely loves it because he can feel the characters. He knows every nuance. He understands the plot twist. He knows what the dialogue means. He knows the innuendo. He knows what's coming next. It all fits. It all makes perfect sense. It's fantastic, okay? The great script, same thing, but a great writer, Aaron Sorkin can make you understand those things about the characters the same way he does. And it's the same thing with a pitch is that a bad pitch that rambles is great to you because you know it all. It all makes total sense. You understand why this information is valuable, but your audience doesn't. And what you have to do is get them to understand it before they start to judge it. You need to build that information in layers. And it's like the way we tell stories in Hollywood. The reason why you sat for three hours to watch Titanic is about a boat that you know sinks is because they tell you the story in pieces. We don't be like, hey, uh, in the Shawshank Redemption, like, hey, Andy Dufresne escapes from this horrible prison. Uh, let's tell you why he does that. It's not like that. You, by the way, spoiler alert, he escapes. <laughs> so you, you build that slowly. You ramp that up, right? Where it's like, we tell you bit by bit by bit by bit. And it builds your understanding and it creates a focus and it builds desire in your audience it's called the inform and lead method. I inform you with information. I let you build that knowledge and conclusion I want. And that's the core of how you pitch and present. And when you do that today in 2020, it's so <clears throat> remarkably different than what everybody else is doing. Uh, and I tell this, this story on stage a lot about Niagara Falls. In, at the turn of the century, Niagara Falls froze solid. And this crashing billions of gallons of water smashing into the rocks below, this roar of the rapids sh shut off. And the people in the town at 3.30 in the morning were jarred out of their beds into the streets like, what the hell happened? Because they had tuned out that roaring raging rapid of sound, just tuned it out. It's background noise to them. And the silence of the falls was the loudest sound they had heard in years. And in our world today, pitching, marketing, click funnels, click baits, headlines, every screen, all of that messaging that's coming at you for the last 
10 years is a raging, rapid waterfall of who gives a crap and it's tuned out. And if you can simplify your message and speak clearly and plainly and get to the point, it is going to be the loudest thing that people around you hear. And it will change the way people perceive you and it will change your success rate on getting your ideas across. 100%. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. That was awesome. I'm, I'm definitely going to get the book as well. So perfect. There you go. Um, I'm going to, Hamza, I'm going to move on. I feel like Brant really covered that question pretty good. Dana, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk anything about some of the TV projects Brant's done. And Dana's got a question about that. Dana, you want to hit yours? You're muted, by the way. Sorry. Um, so I actually have two questions. My first one is kind of more broad, but what is your favorite project you've ever worked on and why and what do, have you continued to work on projects like that or more information? It's really, that's really hard because like the, the projects I like to work on from a creative standpoint are always different than the ones that are successful. Like it, it, so it's a little bit different. So like when we did the biggest loser or extreme makeover, those were really, really successful. And so even on the biggest loser where I wasn't like the day to day, I didn't have a huge hand in that, but it elevates you. And extreme makeover was a huge one of mine that I created from the scratch. And so that was like, you know, a huge piece of it, but probably the mo most fun I ever had producing a TV show show was a show on ABC called Smash, which competitions. It was basically celebrity. It was basically uh, dancing with the stars, springboard diving, which was the most ridiculous idea in the world. And when I sold that show, it was a format that our international office had, and they had put it on the air in the Netherlands, and it set ratings records. So I got to call the head of ABC, and I said to John, and I said, I cannot believe I'm going to pitch you this. It is the dumbest thing I've ever said to a network executive, but I have no choice. I have to pitch you this show because I have ratings in my hand that you can't ignore. And so now he's already... And I said, it is dancing with the stars for springboard diving. And he was like, what? I'm like, celebrity diving. Here's how it works. And I told him the show and we laugh. And then I sent him the ratings and he didn't laugh anymore. And he bought the show. And it was just as ridiculous and stupid as it sounds. I had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which if you youngsters don't know, is a seven foot three tall, thin rake of a famous world champion hall of fame basketball player diving into a pool like it was the craziest most ridiculous show ever, but it was so ridiculously fun uh so those ones i've had a lot of those and a lot of them that just didn't work and then the ones that are big successes are usually the biggest pain in the ass like bar rescue was a colossal pain in the ass to produce very difficult show to do big piece of talent who is he's a big piece of talent so he's hard, hard to wrangle and manage. And when the show gets become super successful, it becomes very hard to do because it changes everybody's attitude and everybody's demand. And you're trying to get John Taffer to do 40 episodes a season. Good luck with that. You know, it's not easy. Uh, Brent, I actually have my, my own question. You, you just brought it up uh, in your book. You talk about the, the edge in the pitch and you actually use John's example, uh, the butt funnel. Yeah. 
Uh, do you want to talk yeah. about the, what the butt funnel is, but also just expand on how do you find your edge when you're putting together a story? Like, what do you do to define the edge? So if you don't mind, like, what is the edge yeah. for these guys and, and how do you find it? Uh, so there's two pieces that come together, right? It's called the hook and the edge. The hook of your story is basically the most important element. That one line that if you understood everything, that's what you would say, right? Bar rescue, the hook of bar rescue is John Taffer is the Gordon Ramsay of bars and nightclubs, right? You get it. You don't start your pitch with that. Cause then people are like, what? Sure he is. Okay. Let me listen. They doubt you from the second, right? Starting with your hook is a disaster. You lead to that. I gave the audience the president of the network, enough detail of the show. Here's the show, here's how it works, here's John's background. So that he actually in the room, which is why I wrote it in the book, he said, hey, you know what? I think he could be our Gordon Ramsay for bars and nightclubs. Okay, that's the hook, the big piece of it, right? Um, let me give you a non-TV one so you can see how easy it translates. Uh, okay, so a new client that I just took on, they make a test. This is weird. This is the kind of things I work on, weird shit. They make a test for at, risk communities, their HIV uh, counseling centers. They make a test to check if their, if their patients are actually taking their PET drugs. So right now for HIV, if you take this certain drug, this PET drug, you, you can't catch AIDS, can't catch HIV. It's preventative. So all you gotta do is take this pill every day. Oh my God. Except for if you're a, a drug user and a hooker or a, a you know, whatever, they can't do anything every day, right? So the problem with that is, is that for those clinics, as they're trying to help these communities, they, they, they prescribe the drug to keep them from getting HIV, and then they have no idea if they take it. And this pitch, the hook is that you can test to find out if they're taking the drug, and then you can intervene, right? So that's the hook, is that you can prevent your patients from catching HIV because you'll know if they're taking the drug and you can stay on them. It's great. The edge of those two stories, let me give you the two edges. The edge is something, the hook is something that you should know. By the time I tell you the story, by the time I pitch it, you know the hook. You, you could almost say it, you almost don't need to say it, right? That's the core of what a good hook is. The edge is something that sort of nails it, pushes it over the edge, brings it all together. It's something that you wouldn't have thought about, but really illustrates why that hook works. So for example, in Bar Rescue, the hook is he's Gordon Ramsay for bars and nightclubs. The edge is called the butt funnel. It's the story of John pulls out a blueprint in the meeting and he shows us how a butt funnel works. And in a bar or a nightclub, there's always kind of a track, like a loop that people go on. You go in, you're at the bar, you're at the nightclub, you wander around through the furniture, see everybody, pass the bathrooms, pass the bar, whatever you do, right? People do these loops. And what he does is he designs a area with furniture where it is too narrow for two people to walk comfortably side by side, you have to turn sideways to shimmy past each other. And when two people shimmy past each other, their butts touch. He funnels people in so that their butts touch each other. Men and women touch butts, endorphins are released. Endorphins are released, you feel better. You feel better, you stay longer. Stay longer, you buy more drinks. Buy more drinks, bar makes more money. Show sold. So that is the edge. You wouldn't know that story, but it follows the hook. It tells you everything. If I'm looking at my HIV prevention drug testing system, the hook of their story is they had a client they were watching that was on the medication and she accidentally had confused the medication with Valtrax. And it's the same color and the same shape pill. And so she was diligent, was taking it every day. 
but was confused and she caught HIV from it because the clinic couldn't verify whether she was taking the right medication or whether she was forgetting it. And with this PEP test, you now know every time they come in, they're already doing a urine sample anyways. Now you can see right now if that drug's in their urine and you can monitor it. And it's like, bang, now you're a clinician, you have to have that test in your cl clinic because now you get it. Now you get it because you know that your drug addict clients or patients, they cannot be relied on, right? And they've, already, they've all been dealing with it. So that's the hook and the edge, how they work together. When you have your big idea that's like, yes, then you have like, let me show you how that works in practice. See, ah, you didn't realize this, right? That's how the edge works. And those two things go together. Love that. Thank you so much for that breakdown, Brent. Um, Mitch, you got an awesome question about hiring people, looking for what you're going to get out of people. Mitch, you want to throw it at Brent? Yeah. So it sounds like you have a lot of really good experience, you know, hiring that many people. So if you're looking to leverage other people's talents in the future, um, what free traits do you look for, you know, that set the rockstar employees aside from maybe the typical average one? Again, the number one for sure is someone who does the more than expected. Doing more than expected is the number one trait I see. It is so painfully obvious for someone in my position and anybody in my position that knows how that works. You can tell because that person does it as as a habit, as a lifestyle, as a personality trait, not as a function of the job. So that's the first thing. Um, the other traits, you know, if you're not talking about skilled stuff, if it's just in general, communication is the big one. Unfortunately, it sucks because introverted people are harder to understand and connect with. And a lot of times this is a relationship game and most businesses are. So it's great if you're the greatest scientist or the data processing guy, then you don't have to worry about your personality. But in general, those communication skills to be able to like clearly illustrate what's going on and when is a big piece. And I think the other one I notice is a big thing is, is confidence. Now I speak a lot of confidence. I actually have an entire workshop that I do on confidence. And we usually think confidence as a personal thing that you develop and a mannerism. And it is absolutely not that. You cannot fake that. People know right away the second you're putting it on. Confidence, true confidence comes from your belief in the value that you are bringing. If you believe you are bringing a lot of value to the situation, you have confidence and it oozes from you and everybody understands that. So it is not about how you act. It's not about the words you use. It's not about the tie you wear. It, none of that matters. It is about the value that you believe you are bringing to somebody else. And that changes your demeanor. I'll give you a very good example. If I was going to come and try to cater your wedding and I was trying to get the chef approved by you and I had Gordon Ramsay who was going to come to your wedding and cook for you live on site, how many words would I need to sell you that idea, right? I have Gordon Ramsay. When I come in to meet with you, are my slouched or are my shoulders back? Is my chest up? Am I smiling? How's my breath? Am I deep breath or am I kind of short and shallow? No, like my voice, is it like mousy or is it big, right? Okay. Value. I know, I got Gordon Ramsay. Like, right? On the other side, what if it was my brother-in-law, ex-convict, just got out of jail, never cooked before, says if, he doesn't, if I don't get him a job, he's going to punch me in the face, 
or worse. How many words do I need to pitch you that, right? I'm going to be like writing novels, trying to come up with a way to sell you this idea, right? And I'm going to walk in in two ways. If I'm an introverted type person, I'm like, you know, my shoulders are going to be down. My voice is going to be smaller because I'm like nervous. Or if you're me, you still come in like this. Hey, I got something great for you. And oh my God, that's bullshit coming. You could smell it a mile away. And that's where most people fall into that categories because they try to be confident. The number of words you use, the level of value you believe you are bringing is going to show your audience where on the scale. If Gordon Ramsay's up here on value and my convict brother-in-law is down here, the more words you use and the more value you, or the, least, the smaller the number of value billing, the lower you are on the scale. The fewer words you use, the more you believe in the value you're bringing, the higher on the scale you're going to instinctively tell your audience. Your audience is going to know that instantly. That's the way communication works. And I find that with employees, employees that yap, 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 explain everything 15 ways. It's like, they don't believe it. They don't have confidence in the value of what they're saying. And I noticed that right away, especially with junior people, assistants, PAs, story producers, the ones who actually know the job, who feel like they've got the goods, don't need to sell me anything. They just tell me the goods. And it's like, I know when someone doesn't have the goods right away. Awesome. We got two more great questions in here. Uh, one of them was asked by two people, essentially the same. Allison, you kind of expanded on a little bit. You want, you want to hit Brent with that one? Oh, there you are. Yep. Um, so basically, I feel like every speaker that we have, something that's always in the back of my mind, like, really, what were you doing before you kind of stumbled into the career path that you're in now? Or what were you thinking about doing? Like, what were you doing at this point that we're at in your life back in the Do you mean, like, before I got into TV or before I got into being a speaker and a coach and stuff? Before, I guess it'd be before you got into TV because it kind of sounds like you started TV before being a coach speaker. Um, you got to say that one more time because you are garbled and. So, uh, Sorry, I'm kind of far from my microphone. Much better. <laughs> um, cool. So basically, what were you doing before you kind of got into TV production? Yeah. So I was always looking for a shortcut to success. I didn't want to go to school anymore. I didn't want to go be an apprentice somewhere. I didn't want to learn a trade. I didn't want to learn. I didn't want to start at the bottom on that. So I had business ideas. I wanted to do web design, DJ company. I own pool halls. I own nightclubs. It was just like a never ending, like grouping of entrepreneurial endeavors because it wasn't because, oh, I loved it. It was like, oh, I see an opportunity, a hole in the market. I can cheat the system. I can skip to the front of the line, right? That was my attitude. Um, that had worked for me well during school. So why wouldn't I do that in life, right? Just don't have to do the work. I'll just take the test. It'll be fine. And so what I found over and over again was just failure of completion. I always get set up, set up stuff would work, get stuff organized, but then I couldn't run anything and I just wasn't enough to make it happen. I didn't know enough about running a pool. I didn't know anything about running a restaurant or a bar. I shouldn't, you know, I didn't have any business doing that. So 
And then you mix that with the Canadian system, which is not an entrepreneurial friendly sort of atmosphere in that country. It's not the same as the United States. And so I was, I was in the mode of trying to find success is really what I was doing. I was not passionate about TV. I was not passionate about creative. I was not passionate about anything other than trying to find where I fit in life. And everybody that I knew thought I was a fool for all the stuff I was doing and thought I just had dumb, big ideas all the time and was never going to make for something. My parents were like, get a real job. So that was my desperation. And what I found when I came to the United States, I found acceptance right away. I found people who were happy to have me succeed, who were excited for the potential that I could bring them who saw the, the ideas as something to be excited about. And I found where I belong. And, you know, Los Angeles and Hollywood for all of its horrible, awful things, it was where I was, it was where I belong, it was where my people were. And I knew the second I got here, I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was getting near the end of the year and I was rolling down the 405 in my convertible Chrysler Sebring with my Blackberry because that was what all executives had at the time. We had BlackBerry. And I moved to the United States in March. So this was December, seven months later, whatever. And I'm going through the BlackBerry and I'm sending, hey man, Merry Christmas, have a great break. I'll see you when we get back from whatever, right? And I realized that I had more people that I cared about and had a connection with in 10 months in the United States, nine months in the United States, than I did in 30 years back in Canada. So when I look at what I was doing before, I was looking for where I was supposed to be. That's what I was searching for. And, and I say this, I, I speak to high schools all over the country and I say the same thing is like, you need to find your people. You need to find what, where you're supposed to be. And it may not be what you're doing right now, that's fine. Because what you're doing now is developing skills that you can leverage and amplify later. And when you find the right fit and the right people and the right environment and the right situation, you'll know it right away. And if you haven't developed the skills to take advantage of it, you will miss it. Because it may not be today. It may be 10 years from now. You don't know. But if you don't do what you do now really well, you won't have those skills when you get there. And that's a really important process for people at an early stage in their career is it doesn't have to be right right now. You have to be right right now. That's the big difference. And when I look at this changeover from going into being an author and a speaker and the consulting I do, I remember a very specific moment. I was on a plane going to Miami and this company had hired me to help them with their presentation and redo their company and whatever. And they're paying me a fortune. And it was like crazy. I'm flying to Miami. I'm doing research on the company. They do, a, they do type 1 diabetes anti-rejection therapy drugs. That's what they're developing. They're in phase 2 primates. It's like the most complicated, crazy thing that I've never heard of anything in my life. I'm flying down there, and I'm looking it up. And the guy who's the head of the company has a wing of the Miami hospital named after him. He has machines in the hospital that are called the Ricordi method because Camilo Ricordi is the most famous pancreatic cancer research guy in the world. And I get this wave of panic 
thinking like, what am I doing? I'm a reality TV producer. How am I going into this company to tell them what to do on anything? This is ridiculous. I have no business being here. And as we got into it and we sat down, I realized the core statement that has guided every client I have and everybody I speak to, there's one core statement that will get you through. Are you ready? Want me to tell you what it is? Nobody has all their shit together. Nobody has all their shit together. Some people have some of their shit together. Some people have a lot of their shit together, but nobody has it all together. And in 15 minutes in the boardroom of 25 of the smartest people in the world, guys with diplomas falling off them like a robe. Oh, I'm sorry. My Harvard just fell, right? They didn't know anything about how to pitch, present, raise money, how to raise their stock, how to, none of that. They knew nothing. And in 15 minutes, I realized, oh, wait a minute. I'm smarter about eight of the 10 things you people do. You stick to your gene therapy. Let me show you how to do this. And I realized the years that I had been spending in television, developing what I do as a skill in television were ridiculously marketable and valuable out in the real world. And the skills you develop today, doing whatever crappy job or great job or whatever you're doing today will be something you amplify later, 100%. It doesn't have to be anything related to what you're doing. And I just decided that I was gonna do it. If I would have waited till I had more credits, or maybe I needed an Emmy. I don't have an Emmy. All my friends have won Emmy. I've never won an Emmy. My show, Intervention, won an Emmy. I didn't get it because it was for editing. I didn't edit. If I had an Emmy, then I could be the guy who talks about pitching. If I just if I had some more shows, if I, if I was just more well-known or something, right? If I could just be the next thing. Because there are thousands of television producers that have done more, bigger, better, faster, could do what I'm doing probably better than I am. Except I'm the guy who raised his hand and said, I'll be the expert. I'll write the book about it. And now I'm the guy with a best-selling book and they're not. And that's fine, but I didn't wait to do it till I had the credentials that I thought were valuable. Random House is the biggest publisher in the world. They thought it was good enough. That's the way the real world is. You think you are less than you really are. And the truth is, everybody sees you bigger. And if you wait till it's right or you're ready or you're the expert, you'll never get there. I really love that last point that Brant hits on. Um, and honestly, so many of these things throughout this whole podcast, so beneficial. If you want to follow Brant, uh, he's at Brant Pinvidic uh, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, all the same. Go check out his page. You can find me at Aaron Z. Griffin on Instagram, uh, at Aaron Griffin on LinkedIn and Facebook. I would love to hear your thoughts on this podcast and really appreciate you supporting the Get After It uh, podcasting project. Rate, review, subscribe. Would love to hear your feedback. Thank you guys so much for joining us on this live discussion call. Get after it, people. I will talk to you all soon and see you on the next episode.